You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. Here we go again. What up? Welcome into Commute the Podcast. I'm Dave, he's Jay, and every week we have a simple mission. We want to provide you with 15 minutes to utilize your commute in the best possible way. We'll tell you about three things today that we think are interesting, and we're betting that you may feel the same way. On this episode of Commute... In most video games, the goal is to defeat an opponent, but what if the opponent is a ticking clock? Ever wondered if you could order a lookalike to live your life for you? You can. And at one point in your life, you probably owned a pair of Tom's shoes or know someone who did, but when was the last time you bought a pair? All of that on this episode of Commute. Let's hit it. All right, Dave. Well, you in the past, like me, played video games while you were growing up. And were you ever a cheat code guy? I am a game cheater. So anyone that has played Monopoly or really any game with me would tell you that I am a game cheater, but not much of a video game cheater because I prefer my cheating to be secretive. Well, as uh, video games have evolved, there has kind of been this subculture emerging online, and it's called speedrunning video games. Have you ever heard about this before? Uh, no. I, I, I'm imagining you hook some sensors up to your body. Yeah, you're, you're overcomplicating it a little bit. Speedrunning a video game <laughs> is essentially where you're trying... Is that the Wii? Isn't that how the Wii works? <laughs> you uh, are essentially trying to beat a video game as fast as possible. This has been a trend that has kind of emerged, especially on internet uh, gaming streaming communities online, where people will set a clock and then they'll try to beat the video game as fast as possible. But what I love about it is that it's not just that you're trying to beat the game as fast as possible, but there really are no rules. So if you figure out how to beat a game by glitching through the game's coding or through the game's programming, and you figure out that if you run into the wall at this space and it glitches you halfway across the map, that counts. If you figure out ways to skip entire levels, that counts. And so people, uh, you know, you imagine playing a game like The Legend of Zelda and you're you're like, okay, well, somebody probably spent a few hours trying to beat this game. No, you want to know what the record uh, currently for speedrunning The Legend of Zelda, the Ocarina of Time game is? That just so- that sounds long and somewhat boring, so I'm going to guess 10 hours. Uh, it's actually seven minutes and nine <laughs> seconds because of glitching, because what people have figured out is all these little tricks to get around the game itself. Now, there's kind of two categories when you talk about speedrunning. There's the kind of anarchy that we just talked about, but there's also glitchless. So the glitchless record for beating Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time is three hours, 39 minutes, and 47 seconds. So a little bit more respectable. So that's, that's, that's playing it legitimately. Yes, playing it legitimately. Uh, okay. Super Mario Brothers, without using the warp, uh, is 18 minutes, 59 seconds, and 008 milliseconds. We have to get really fine. If you're using the glitch, it's 4 minutes, 55 seconds, and 230 milliseconds. Okay, so why is speedrunning popular? Because I I see your face, and I know that you're thinking, this is really stupid. I kind of tried to come up with some reasons why I think speedrunning video games is successful. 
One is that it kind of treats these games like the digital artifacts that they are. You have to explore the game's code and the game's programming to try to find hacks and to try to cut corners to beat it in a more, I guess you could say, efficient way. It's extraordinarily popular. So even if old uh, purists like us are shaking our heads, uh, this is still something that is very much alive on internet communities. The organization Games Done Quick has actually raised $3 million for Doctors Without Borders uh, over the past couple years. And over 10 years, they've raised $26 million for Doctors Without Borders uh, streaming these speedrunning video games. So maybe we're a little too old to appreciate it, but I thought it was fascinating nonetheless. Don't try to tug at my heartstrings. The, the people that do this are joyless. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that right now because this is like when the Wii came out and, and Wii Golf was a thing and people would lay on their couch and play it. It defeated the purpose. The joy of the game was gone. So, Jay, at some point in our lives, I think uh, if we're being honest, we've all wanted to be someone else, right? I, I mean, when I was little, I wanted to be a Power Ranger, so there's that. But, but I mean, even on a serious note, sometimes we just struggle with who we are. Well, and I think all of us have a need to just be perceived by others in a really positive way. Yeah. Well, well, the digital company Vice decided to make this an actual possibility for people. Okay. So to start this story, I need to briefly describe two things to you. Okay. I need you to understand two things. What Vice is, who they are and what they do, and who the English comedian, writer, and videographer Uba Butler is. Okay, so let's start with Vice. So Vice was launched in 1994, and Vice has offices in 35 cities across the world and makes 1,700 pieces of content every day through their five key lines of business. Okay, quickly, that's Vice.com, Vice Studios, which is a feature film and television production studio, Vice TV, a Peabody Award-winning news division of Vice, and Virtue, a global full-service creative agency with 21 offices around the world. Now here's Uba Butler. Uba Butler is what we call an internet prankster. When Uba was a teenager, he would book shows for his fake band at venues. He didn't have a band, but he would get shows lined up at this venue. That grew into him conning his way into Paris's Fashion Week, pretending to be a famous designer, which ultimately led him to joining Vice in 2015 after successfully pitching an article to them in which he challenged himself to be a more successful door-to-door salesman than one of the Jehovah's Witnesses in his community. Uba's most famous con job, though, Jay, is called The Shed at Dulwich a fake restaurant that became the highest-rated restaurant on TripAdvisor in London in 2017. That's beautiful. It reminds me a lot of uh, Nathan Fielder from Nathan For You, which I'm a big fan of that show. I know you are, too. Uh, I thought the same thing, that Uber reminded me of Nathan Fielder. So in 2018, inspired by the hijinks of Uber, Vice launched the website uber.com which you can go to right now and use to apply for a stand-in, okay? A person that would trick people in your life to thinking that you're actually more good-looking, intelligent, and interesting than you actually are. And Jay, when the service launched, it had 650 submissions in the first few days, okay? Over 100 of which were people just requesting to be taller than they actually are. Here's a few of my favorites. I just want to be a version of me that isn't fat, I recently said I was starting a book club, and people are actually interested in joining it, which scares me. 
I'm not sure I want to go through with it, but also don't want to let people down. Could you start the book club for me? I've always wanted to do stand-up comedy. The problem is I'm not funny enough, nor do I have the appropriate situational awareness. I really just want to impress my girlfriend, but I know I would personally fail. So I guess I'm wondering, like, how far does this go? Do I get a body double who comes in and goes to functions for me? Or is it like an online, build my online persona type deal? Like, how does this work? Well, the thing is that this isn't like Amazon. You don't just get to log on and order a copy of JSystem and they show up at your door and do whatever you want. So Vice has actually delivered on some of these requests. And here's one of those examples. So we're going to look at a guy named Steven. Steven requested a body double because he wanted to go to his high school reunion. The only problem was Stephen had been unsuccessfully trying to become a rock star since he graduated from high school and his career hadn't really quite taken off. His father was a local dentist and he hadn't yet committed to becoming the heir apparent to the dentistry and he didn't want to go back to his reunion. He was embarrassed of the way he looked and he was also embarrassed of his career never becoming something that he could brag about or or other people would be impressed by. So Stephen decided to turn to our friends at uba.com. Now, Jay, this is where we enter a guy named Aaron to the story. Aaron is a handsome actor, and he agrees to play the role of Steven. So when you think of Steven, think just a little schlubby. Aaron, think Brad Pittish. Uba and Vice hang up fake posters around town of a band that Steven is in with pictures of Aaron. They do some work on Aaron, actually cut his hair, to make him look like a more attractive version of Steven, and off to the high school reunion, Aaron goes. So while the fake Steven actually convinces people that he is Steven for quite a while, things eventually change, and the reunion goers are very confused as to why he has no memories of their time in high school together. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. So so people are asking him very specific questions, thinking this can't be Steven, he's way too hot. And he doesn't remember them because obviously he's not Steven. It's, it's like a genuine mystery. Like, I'm still trying to figure out. I'm like, where's this going? Well, as people start to figure it out, Steven gets a little worked up and decides to actually go to the reunion. So Steven oh, no. goes into the reunion. So now you've got the real Steven, the fake Steven being played by the actor Aaron, and all of these very confused classmates from Steven's high school. The interesting thing about all this, the crowd actually really wanted to see the real Steven. And so the lasting take on this experience is that maybe all of us are a little bit better than we thought that maybe we are. That people don't see us the way that we see ourselves, and sometimes that's a good thing. At any time in your life, did you ever own a pair of Tom's shoes? Yep, I've got at least two pairs um, collecting dust somewhere in my house. Well, my next question was, when was the last time that you bought a pair of Tom's shoes? Well, the dust is pretty thick. So it's been a while, it'd be safe to say. It's been a hot minute, yeah. Well, you're not alone. A lot of people bought Tom's shoes at the end of the 2000s and uh, haven't really bought them since. Tom's Shoes was started in uh, 2006 by a guy named Blake Mykoski, and he got the idea uh, while he was visiting Argentina 
basically what had happened was he got recruited to go on this mission to deliver shoes to people who needed them. And he looked around and said, I want to do this for a living. So he looked at a type of shoe that was very popular in Argentina at the time. It was called the Alpargata. And he said, I'm going to kind of copy that to make the shoe that we now know as the canvas staple of Tom's shoes. And when it took off, when his company took off, it was massive. In 2013, they did $250 million worth of business and donated 10 million shoes. In 2014, they jumped from 250 million to 625 million. And I remember being in college, everybody was wearing Tom's shoes. It was a it was a cultural phenomenon. Hollywood stars were wearing them. They really resonated with young people. One is because they made a shoe that people liked, but it's also because they popularized what was called the one-for-one model. And the idea was that you buy a pair of shoes, and for every pair that you buy, Tom's would donate an identical pair of shoes to someone in need around the world. So for a while, it obviously worked, but eventually Tom started to become stale. So what happened? Well, their canvas shoe that they were so popular for is what's best known as a hero product. A hero product is a product created by a company that is kind of like what they're known for. So for example, like the Air Jordans for Nike is a hero product. But hero products can get stale like any product, and they do need rejuvenation. Tom's was a very easy product to copy. Uh, For example, a shoe came out suspiciously similar to Tom's called Bob's, which were cheaper to buy, number one, and they donated two pairs of shoes for everyone sold instead of one pair of shoe for everyone sold. (laughs) I've always loved that Bob's existed. Yeah, it was was the clear rival to Tom's, right? It's like Fig Newman's instead of Fig Newton's. Right, yeah, just close enough. Tom's kind of raised this question, too, about like, is... Is it really helping people? You know, the idea of humanitarian aid over economic development has long been criticized by people who are experts in studying poverty. The idea of giving someone a fish instead of becoming a teacher of fishing, it doesn't really help people move out of poverty. It's nice, but eventually there's a shelf life to giving people shoes in how much you can help them, right? And so Tom's received a lot of that flack uh, as they were sort of becoming part of the main stream. So they started to experiment, um, and their experimentation became very diversified. So they started to create uh, other products on the one-for-one model. So in 2014, they started Tom's Roasting Company, which if you bought a bag of coffee from them, they would give a week's worth of water to someone in need. Uh, They teamed up with an anti-bullying organization for a line of backpacks. But the problem was they could not really grow beyond the hero product. Uh, And in a fast fascinating study was done in 2014 by Tom's, and they found out that only half of the people who bought their products ever even knew about the one-for-one model. Tom's was starting to realize that people weren't really buying the shoes to give. People were buying the shoes because they wanted a cool pair of shoes. They wanted to fit in, and the, the giving was just a bonus. So in 2019, uh, Tom's was actually taken over by creditors. Today, 50% of the company is owned by creditors. And currently, the company is working on reinventing itself. You know, Dave, it's really hard to run a business, and it's really hard to run a charitable organization, but it's extra hard to run a business 
and charitable organization because people expect a lot from charitable organizations and they expect good products from the businesses. Tom's has tried some things along the way. You have to give them credit. They have tried to reinvent themselves. Uh, In 2013, they began building factories to manufacture their goods in the cities where they donate. So they're trying to attack this problem of offering economic development instead of humanitarian aid. You know, at the end of the day, you have to give Tom's credit, too, because they have pioneered this act of corporate giving. Since Tom's has been around, there have been 40 successful one-for-one companies using the model that Tom's initially pioneered. So are we witnessing the cusp of a comeback story? I guess time will tell. You know, another good one is Dr. Perky and Dr. Pepper. Like, just not the same. You know what I mean? I also Googled Tom's to see what the top search result was, because I think that's kind of how you can tell how they're doing. Tom's Discount Tobacco came up. So, um, hey. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commute. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And please share it with somebody that you think might be into what we're trying to do on this podcast. Music for Commute is provided by Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Trop. We'll see you next week. Commute.